and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and thanks for joining us. On this episode, we are going to get perspective from our friend Cheryl Battles on how the workplace plays a unique role in bringing people from different backgrounds together and the leadership role corporate America can play in continuing to build a more compassionate society for everyone. We also are going to talk to Garrett Peck about his new book about the first decade of the 21st century in America and the disruptive events that set the stage for many of the dynamics in our society today. But first, I wanna start with the obvious, which is that a lot has happened in the world since our last podcast just a couple of weeks ago. And for a podcast that is dedicated to exploring history through the lens of business, we again find ourselves grappling with a year in which the history of the moment cannot be ignored or underestimated. Over the last couple of weeks, the protests, which began after the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day, have garnered the support of millions around the world. And look, I'm not going to rehash or report here what has happened and is continuing to happen. That's what Twitter is for. But I do think that one thing the events of the last couple of weeks have made crystal clear is how important it is for us to push ourselves to listen, to get different perspectives, to be open and to embrace that all of us in some way have a role to play in making our society work better for everyone. And to that point, I participated on a Zoom call last week uh, that was hosted by the Arthur W. Page Society, uh, the corporate communications uh, organization uh, that included a couple of hundred uh, of us. And one of the perspectives that I really appreciated listening to was that of Cheryl Battles. So I'm so appreciative to her for joining me. Um, Cheryl has been a consistent voice for diversity and inclusion in corporate America. Uh, She is currently vice president of global diversity, inclusion, and engagement at Pitney Bowes, the 100-year-old technology company. She was previously the VP of Corp Comms for 11 years at Pitney Bowes. She is also currently the co-chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for the Arthur W. Page Society. She has been recognized as the 2018 Business Person of the Year by Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, uh, 2017 Influential Woman in Global Diversity by Diversity Global Magazine, Savoy Magazine's Top Influential Women in Corporate America, the Donald H. McGannon Award from the National Urban League, and Ebony Magazine's 100 Most Promising Black Women in Corporate America. So let's listen in on my conversation with Cheryl Battles. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. (laughs) Thank you. Well, we're having this conversation on um, Monday, and uh, it's been, I guess, two weeks since uh, Memorial Day Monday and the day that uh, the George Floyd uh, was killed. And it's obviously been a very eventful uh, last two weeks. Um, so maybe we can just begin with sort of your perspective on uh, what the last couple of weeks uh, have been like uh, and and what you've, what you've seen. Yeah, it's been a... Um... I would say a roller coaster of emotion um, the last couple of weeks. You know, unfortunately, um, the the killing of George Floyd um, it, it wasn't new relative to uh, 
American history and the history of uh, African-Americans, and it should not be acceptable as what is normal. So there was a piece of me that was uh, very fearful. Um, you know, it reinforces um, that could have been me, that could have been my husband, that could have been virtually anybody I know. I have a, you know, a 19-year-old daughter, that could have been her. Um, so um, fear, disheartened uh, to see that it felt like there's, you know, this inability to, to still see African-Americans as fully human. Um, because when you see someone as human, it's, it's virtually impossible to do something like what the whole world uh, witnessed. Um, so that, that was, uh, you know, the downside. The, certainly um, the hopeful side. Um, I, I asked my daughter how she was processing this as uh, she's been going into her sophomore year in college. And um, she stopped and she said, you know, mom, that's, that's what happens to black people in America. And I said, it is, but it doesn't have to be. And it led to this great conversation about, you know, saying what many people refer to as the talk. And you have this talk over and over and over again, but it's about, you know, this is how you act if you are confronted by um, a policeman. This is what you need to do, right? And even though I don't know what happened here, clearly it's important to realize that there will be those who see you and they don't know you, but just based on the color of your skin, they're going to make certain assumptions about you. And it's important for your safety to understand that, but don't be afraid. And don't let that make you any less determined to be fully who you are and show the world what you can do. Right. And she's like, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, this is, um, you know, maybe things can be different now. And I said, I think they can. I think this is really kind of opening up the conversation. So to, to see kind of what has resulted um, after this tragedy in terms of the ways that the world has reacted, uh, not just across the US, but literally around the world um, has been uh, energizing and, and, and hopeful. Um, but it, it is an, a very interesting time. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting your point of um, just the the you know the fact that this has just been reality and this this time is not different than how it's been in the past and I remember after um, hearing of the news and and watching that horrible video that what was most shocking to me was the fact that there was three other officers just standing there that was yeah. like more bizarre and surreal yeah. to me than the horrible yeah. act of because it completely when you see something like that, it completely um, sort of undermines the idea of, you know, that there's bad, there's just one bad actor. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, that there aren't obviously lots of 
of departments and officers all doing the right thing. But just that level of, of casualness about it was just so disgusting. Um, but, you know, as you, as you said, Cheryl, you know, this has happened, you know, so many times. And I think as you were implying, though, it does feel like this time may be different. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I was curious to get your perspective on that, because obviously over the last week, we've seen this outpouring of response around the world. And we've seen so many companies and brands issue statements, which are easy to be sort of cynical about in terms of, you know, are they going to put some actions behind those words? But right. we're starting to see some of that. And yeah. I was curious on your perspective, based on your experience, how you see this time maybe being different than uh, Ferguson, you know, five or six years ago and, you know, what happened in Baltimore. Um, you know, any thoughts on how this moment is potentially different and maybe why? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, you know, there's a there's a quote uh, of uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King's, that was widely um, being tossed around uh, a lot in the last week or so uh, about ultimately a riot is the language of the unheard. And I read this great article about how. Um, people are taking that quote uh, out of context um, because he was, whenever I think of peaceful protest, right, he, he absolutely was the, the paragon of that. And the context in which he made that quote uh, was during a, a television interview actually with Mike Wallace Mm-hmm. And, and then he later did in uh, 1966, and then in 1967, he, he used it again at a speech in Stanford. And he was talking actually about how he thought that um, he was reinforcing the need for nonviolence and that violent confrontations, he thought, ultimately were uh, self-defeating and destructive. And, because, and he argued that every time that that happens, you actually trigger an even more extreme reaction, right, uh, in the other way. Uh, and so it was important, uh, He, when he said the statement, he was simply saying, look, I hope the people who are condemning, you know, what they see in terms of, you know, this mob that's out of control, that they are also uh, condemning equally the underlying rationale for it happening. Mm-hmm. And what, what he understood uh, in many ways was the power of the visual and the power of um, just exposing the inhumanity and understanding that humans would react to it. So when you think about the Birmingham Children's March, uh, right, where he had literally it was a thousand children ranging from age six to high school, uh, peacefully marching from a church in Birmingham, trying to get to City Hall, singing gospel songs, unarmed children. And, um, you know, the then famous uh, uh, head of police, Bull Connors, uh, turned fire hoses and dogs and policemen with baton to 
uh, literally in prison, about 600 of these children for five days. And the images of these children being uh, attacked, um, many feel, uh, help to move public sentiment. Uh, to say, oh my goodness, th this just can't happen. We can't go forward this way. In many ways, that's what I feel has happened here. That mm -hmm. that video, that eight minute, you know, eight minutes and thirty six seconds of hearing him plead for his life, uh, and you know, call his mom and and just watch him take the his last gasp. That's it's hard to watch uh, with without a, an emotional reaction to it. And so what I think is happening is that there not only has been this kind of groundswell um, in in the streets, if you will, um, but there's also been um, when you think about corporate America in many ways. Um, Edelman uh, PR agency does this, you know, phenomenal um, survey every year, uh, the trust barometer, trust and they've been doing it for about 17 <clears throat> years or so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's, what's been happening steadily is trust has been going down in all public institutions, and yet the highest on the trust level are corporations. And I talk about all the time, companies are the intersection where the average American is exposed to the greatest amount of diversity for the longest sustained period. Uh, our neighborhoods are not necessarily um, diverse, which means our public schools are not. Um, you know, our houses of worship are not necessarily diverse. It's the, it's the corporation where you are exposed to those who may be different than you. And uh, that gives corporations, I think, a great opportunity. And it also gives us a great responsibility on uh, how we set the tone um, what we um, model in terms of treating one another um, really can make a difference. And so I think you see externally, um, the outside world is saying to corporations, where are you on this? And I think you see internally, uh, increasingly employee activists saying, you know, we say our values are X, Y, Z. Does this align with our values? And so we have seen companies come to the fore and say, you know what? This, this is not acceptable. This is not who we are. This is not who we should be. This is not who we want to be. Now, there's always a danger in that, right? Um, the New York Times had an article um, in essence saying that corporate America had failed Black America uh, and listing examples of companies that had put out support statements and then contrasted it with their behavior. So mm -hmm. when you make those statements, on one hand, you absolutely need to be authentic and it absolutely needs to align with who you are and where you want to be. But on the other hand, 
no, no one, I don't believe, is claiming to have this mastered, right? Uh, we're, we're all on this journey um, to be better constantly. And so when someone speaks out, I don't think they are necessarily holding themselves up as a paragon, um, but simply making a statement, or at least from, that's what we're doing from our perspective, that this is just not who we are. And we want to make sure everyone understands that. Yeah, and I, I appreciate your perspective on that, Cheryl, because it's it's an interesting way to to make the connection between um, what's been happening happening obviously with social dust, justice and violence against African Americans and how that translates to an issue of diversity in the workplace. Um, so that was a very uh, interesting uh, perspective in terms of you know the workplace really being one of the uh, most important environments. Um, um, for uh, for that, and obviously, as a person who has um, been uh, a force for uh, diversity and inclusion in, in corporate America for a long time, um, what have been some of the most promising advancements that you've hopefully seen in the last uh, few years? Um, or conversely, you know, what are some of the continued frustrations that you have? Um. I think in general, just the progression of understanding of really what is diversity and inclusion. You know, we at Pitney Bowes like to say, you know, diversity is our reality. Uh, Almost 50% of our workforce in the U.S. are people of color uh, and 43% of our global workforce are women. Uh, So diversity is our reality. Um, And inclusion is our strategic intent um, to optimize the talents of all, right? And and it's an and conversation, not an or conversation. And so uh, over time, in general, what I've seen happen in in, uh, corporate America is this move from uh, awareness to what I would call a compliance period, uh, to what some call acceptance, and then you know where we try to be and go from uh, to strategic imperative. You know, it's aligned with our business strategy, and we think it is uh, essential to us successfully getting to where we want to go in terms of uh, whether that's greater uh, engagement, productivity, innovation, responsiveness to our markets. Um, we know we've got to not just reflect what our markets look like and our communities look like, but we know these differences in perspective help us move forward. No one gets to the next big thing through groupthink. You've got to have those differing uh, experiences and, and perspectives uh, and voices to to really move things and and be disruptive uh, in order to create greater value. So um, the the move in general in that direction is is really heartening. Um, I I don't know <clears throat> if we necessarily have time, but you know our own history, uh, our company has this really interesting history relative to this conversation uh, dating back to the 1940s 
when our CEO, Walter Wheeler, was, um, he did a whole series of things in the 1940s. Uh, but it started with him being on the um, labor relation, the war production board uh, for World War II, appointed by President Roosevelt. And part of what he had to convince uh, other manufacturers to do, because we were, we were born as a huge manufacturer, um, was to employ uh, African-Americans. Mm. While about 30 plus percent of all males in the U.S., 16 or older, were off to war. Mm. Um, so during that time, though, he was not only convincing other manufacturers, he's writing them. Literally, we've got he was a prolific writer. He's writing memos saying, hey, I want to make sure that there is nothing that precludes the hiring of someone based on their race. And then he'd write another memo. So where are we on that? You know, so it wasn't just a, a fleeting thing. It's like he saw that the African-American men and women that the company brought in had the same work ethic. They were as committed to quality. They were uh, faithful in, in doing their job and helping others. And he said, if this is what diversity is, then I want more of it. Right. So from the beginning, our history has been really tied to this kind of business value of having diverse voices in the room. And right. I mean, he ultimately went on to testify in support of what became Title seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the Equal Employment Act. Um, so he was a consistent voice in the 40s, 50s and 60s for this is what needs to happen. And then it's like every CEO since him has kind of picked up the banner all the way through to our current CEO, Mark Lautenbach, who's on the, the business roundtable, who just put, you know, put out a statement, but they've also formed a racial justice committee that he's on. He's on the Catalyst Board to advance women as well. So, you know, this is kind of the environment that, you know, this is what shaped my lens uh, of what it should look like. Mm. And I, I definitely see people moving in, in uh, this direction. Um, but it, it, you know, it, you have to have a holistic approach to it. It's not a, ooh, let me, you know, do this one thing and then everything will be great. No, it's, it, it really is, is more comprehensive than that. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's really um, that's really fascinating how uh, Pitney Bowes has this sort of heritage that's part of its DNA of, the, of diversity. So that's that's pretty amazing. Um, and, and what's what's been the tenor uh, there within the company over the last couple of weeks? Uh, anything that you might share from uh, from from your your team's perspective? Yeah, it's been um, it's been intense, you know. Um, I think I might have shared with you a blog that I wrote um, that um, so I wrote that like on a Saturday and was e emailing with the uh, CEO because he was working on a blog as well. So his blog went up on a Monday. Mine went up on Tuesday. Um, and then by Wednesday, we had what we call this moment of um, conscious and reflection. And um, it started with our um, 
CHRO, our Chief Human Resources Officer, kind of sharing personally how she was feeling. And then people just opened up. And as I said to someone later, it was one of the most powerful hours I have ever sat through in my professional career. It was just Mm. unbelievable. But the response to kind of uh, the blogging we've done, uh, and this was not the only one of these. This was just one that I happened to uh, participate in where I've heard from employees um, saying, you know, you you sharing how you felt um, made it okay uh, for me not to be okay. Or, you know, what I heard when I saw the CEO do this was it made me uh, be resolved to be different when I go home. And, you know, it, so we've had this, um, I, I said to the CHRO, it's like this window has opened up. And so we have this great opportunity while people are open uh, to really press forward and press forward in a, in a meaningful way. Now, I had said the same thing about COVID, quite frankly, mm-hmm. uh, where this is, I noted uh, to someone, this is a period of time when someone says, how are you? They are more genuinely interested in listening and you are more likely to tell them, right? right. Other than, if oh, I'm not great, just how are fine. you? Yeah. <laughs> Now you ask the question, you're not expecting a one-word answer. Right, right, exactly. So I think the combination of these two events really um, presents an amazing opportunity uh, for companies to, um, it, you know, it's all about our humanity uh, and, and connecting uh, around that. Yeah. No, that's a, th- those are great insights. And what, and what would you like to see happen? Uh, I mean, what, what for you would be a, a successful legacy, at least of the last couple of weeks in terms of what, what we've gone through? Um, you know, what, what would you like to see at least come out of this, this chapter of the fight? I would, I would definitely say greater understanding. Um, and uh, I, I keep pivoting back to the concept of humanity, but more willingness to really treat each other as humans. I, I always do this uh, example uh, about um, my, my mother had freckles and I got one. And I said, now imagine a world in which you, you looked at my freckle and you drew some conclusions about my uh, character um, my capability and my capacity, just based on my freckle. So you say, oh, people with freckles, you know, they're a little shifty. Uh, you know, they're not that bright. And they probably will never get beyond entry level. So all of a sudden, just by my freckle, you, you've got my character, capability, and capacity down. And you act accordingly. And when you interact with me, you're looking for evidence of those things. Well, that's what happens when we take any layer of our individuality, like skin color, and say, ah, she's black. (laughs) And then you fill in the blank accordingly. So what I would hope would come out of this 
is that we would stop doing that. I mean, again, going back to Dr. Martin Luther King, he's, you know, he, he dreamt of a world in which it literally, we were judging people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And, and that's what I would like to see come out of this. Yeah. Well, history is defined by, by tipping points and uh, hopefully we're, we're living through one right now. Um, what other advice might you offer to any of your, your peers or uh, leaders maybe working in organizations that um, haven't done uh, the work or haven't progressed perhaps as far as, as your organization has with respect to DNI? Um, I, you know, I would say, uh, uh, I think I might have mentioned earlier, we take a real systems approach to it. So it's not an individual program or, um, you know, a resource group or it's not any one thing. It's everything. Uh, and so it's really looking at um, because whatever you do that supports um, diversity inclusion just supports good people management. And so it's really just thinking very um, holistically about what can we do to make this a better place uh, for employees to be and learn and grow and be the best that they can be and help us be the best we can be. Awesome. Well, Cheryl, thanks so much for your insights. And uh, I'm, I'm ashamed that I forgot to say at the beginning of this, happy uh, 100th anniversary uh, to Pitney Bowes. I had forgotten uh, that your company has an anniversary. We should have had you on earlier in the year uh, to have talked about that. <laughs> so perhaps we'll get you on another time to talk more about uh, the history of the company. Uh, but thank We'd you for, love to come back. So thank yeah. you for proactively. Uh, I, shame on me for... Uh, but thank you for uh, for for proactively bringing uh, bringing the history into the discussion. So um, that's awesome. Thank you. So thank, thank you. Great having you. Great being here. <laughs>Thanks again, Cheryl. And as we were discussing, it's expected and it's reasonable, candidly, that the overwhelming supportive reaction from corporate America and the hundreds of CEOs that have issued statements in support of the Black Lives Matter movement has been met with skepticism. Corporate America is going to have to put the walk behind all its talk on this. One piece of especially sharp and legitimate criticism came from Mark Ritson in a piece in Marketing Week uh, last week in which he blamed many companies with no African-Americans on their boards, much less on their leadership teams as being total hypocrites for their empty words and black boxes on social media. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, um, but I do wonder if this may be a tipping point um, perhaps not so dissimilar to what happened in South Africa in the 1980s. Um, back in the 1980s, uh, between one third and one half of the S&P 500 did business in South Africa. But between 1985 and 1990, hundreds of those companies cut ties with the country in large part due to protest divestment and public pressure. Um, it's actually an interesting story, but students across the United States began putting pressure on their universities and colleges to divest. And over time, as the managers of these endowments had to give in to the movements that started on campuses 
a groundswell of support and the risk of a substantial sell-off of stocks pressured U.S. companies, resulting in over 200 of them cutting ties with South Africa. And the departure of American investment helped trigger a chain of events that weakened South Africa's economy and helped end apartheid. And as Cheryl and I also discussed, the impact of that awful eight-minute video of George Floyd's death has also been a major factor and may indeed be part of this tipping point. And it was interesting how Cheryl drew the parallel to some of the most iconic moments and images of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and how, um, how the civil rights leaders at that time um, used the power of media uh, to help sway um, public opinion. And that role of viral media and technology is probably as good a segue as any um, to introduce our next topic and, uh, and guest, our friend Garrett Peck. Uh, Garrett has been on the pod before. Um, Garrett is an American historian who is the author of six books. And his latest that just came out last week is A Decade of Disruption, America in the New Millennium. Garrett, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be talking again. It's great to be here, Jason. Thanks so much for inviting me back. Yeah, man. Congrats uh, Congrats on the new book. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's always an interesting time bringing out a book during a pandemic. But hey, yes. it's, the, it's the hand we've been dealt, so we'll deal with it. <laughs> well, and, uh, and both, I guess, um, uh, reflective of, of the current times we're living in, but also uh, the first decade of this century, uh, uh, you... you named uh, your book A Decade of Disruption. And uh, let's start with that title. What led you to land on that concept of disruption as the central theme uh, for the book and kind of the the central theme of the first uh, 10 years of, of the century? Yeah. As I was going through the history, and, I, and by the way, I started this book back in 2007 during the housing meltdown after the bubble burst. And just was starting to look back and, and see how many disruptive events we had lived through, you know, disruption on the federal government side, how many market disruptions that we had witnessed. And of course, the housing bubble boom was a huge disruption, followed by the Great Recession, Hurricane Katrina, the Iraq War 9-11. It was just like, wow, one after the next, you know, we, we were living just through constant disruptions in our lives. And certainly at this moment in the pandemic, we are living through the biggest disruption any of us have seen. And it affects every single person in this world. So. Um, and we certainly wanted to look at it not just on the on these external events that affected all of us, but also, for example, how much the internet disrupted so many different business models, including the post office. Because I mean, when was the last time you got a letter, or when was the last time you actually wrote a letter to someone? You know, it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, <laughs> so we've all changed so many of our habits because of this. We sort of developed new habits around disruption, in part because we're resilient people. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too because I think a lot of the things that we're we're now experiencing with the pandemic, with respect to uh, the the lack of trust and expertise, and obviously the polarization that we're experiencing, and you know, looking back at that century or that decade, I should say, uh, through the, the the lens of of companies and brands, um, they were not immune. You know, if you go back and look at things like uh, you know. The Edelman, you know, trust work, uh, even in the in the two thousands, 
um, they were not immune to that sort of increasing level of, of mistrust of big institutions. Uh, and some of that, as you touched on, you know, the, uh, with, with the Great Recession and the too big to fail. And, uh, and then obviously with, with some of the things that started at the, at the beginning of that decade. Um, but how did that play out? You know, what were some of the big sort of milestones with the corporate sector that tie into that concept of disruption? Yeah. Um, if, you, if you look back at the very first decade, we had a bubble burst at the very beginning of it, which was the internet bubble. You know, there was so much hype generated around it. And, um, and I wrote about how the Super Bowl of 2000 had the best commercials you've ever seen, all produced by companies that soon went out of business. And, you know, like pets.com and so on. And, um, <laughs> and uh, there was a cat herding commercial that was really, really funny and all. Um, but in more, on the more serious side, though, you know, soon after that, we saw in 2002, two major companies, one of which I worked for, by the way, and that was Enron and WorldCom. And these were accounting fraud companies. So basically ways that they were using to drive shareholder value and to drive the stock price up. Um, the case of WorldCom, which was the company I worked for, it was really simple accounting fraud. Um, they took stuff that should have been placed into the um, into your, your daily expenses bucket, and instead they tried to amortize it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, as we discovered, it was $11 billion with a B of fraud. Incredible. So WorldCom ended up being the biggest bankruptcy in world history, and it held that record for six years until Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual broke it in 2008. Yeah. So it's interesting. And I, and I, I come from corporate America, but I spent my career at, at MCI and at, at Verizon. And, um, it, but I still kind of get the heebie-jeebies every time I hear the word shareholder value. Cause I just think of like, oh, what, you know, what these guys did for fraud just to get the stock price up, you know? Yeah. So, but it, I think it's partly human nature. We chase after the shiny new object. We chase after more profitability and whatnot. We chase after subprime. And that, of course, very quickly became toxic. And that's, um, especially after the housing bubble burst, that's what led to the Great Recession. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, uh, kind of on, maybe hopefully on a more positive note, um, you know, we're, we're in an era now where social, corporate social responsibility is, uh, is ideally uh, better than it's been in, in some past decades. Um, and one of the kind of proof points I think that you talk about in your book is the progress in, in the first decade uh, of gay rights. Um, and you know, curious on your, your perspective on the roles that companies played in that and uh, maybe at what cost. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm a gay person myself, and you can might tell from my shirt, but um, <laughs> it's it was so interesting. To, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it was so interesting to watch just over the over the decade, and, and really the last decade and a half since the 1990s, just how much corporate America really got on board with supporting gay rights. It was just a, what it came down to was the fundamental question is is not discrimination wrong. And that's what it came down to. And so you started seeing a lot more companies putting anti-discriminatory policies in place. Um, you saw some more advertising popping up, like on the Ellen Show back in you know, 1997 and, and on. And of course, you had the culture arguments, you know, like Will and Grace, who everyone loved that show. So mm-hmm. more and more companies wanted to advertise because they wanted to find new customers. And they also wanted to let their employees know, hey, we're, we're with you here. So I think one of the interesting little backlashes, which went really went nowhere, was the Southern Baptist Convention declared a, a, basically a boycott of the Walt Disney Company, saying all, all their members should not go to Disney World or Disneyland. 
And they started that in 1997, that lasted eight years and really had no impact at all on the bottom line. And of course, Disney, they kind of shrugged. They were like, look, we have a whole slew of gay employees. We have tons of gay customers who are coming to uh, come to our theme parks or watching our movies. Why would you want to discriminate against anyone? You know, so it's, it's been so interesting to watch all of this. And, uh, and you get to today's Pride events, which are always held in June, because that's when Stonewall was in 1969. Mm-hmm. And you see now you go to the Gay Pride Parade, which are very family-friendly events, by the way. So, you know, attend them. Probably not this year because of the pandemic, but, you know, go another year. And you'll see how, how much corporate America has really stepped up. I mean, like, you know, my company, Verizon, always has a big presence there. Uh, many of the banks do, et cetera. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal for, for so many different companies to show that they're supporting their employees. And, and uh, it, it's, it's really wonderful. We, it took us a long time really to, re- to recruit this. Um, of course, there's a little bit of a backlash on the other end today, which was, you know, okay, gay, gay liberation was about, you know, liberation or whatever that meant. I never really knew, understood that, but <laughs> we were just, you know, we were calling for equal rights and that was it. And but there are still some people out there today who are upset at like how corporate pride is becoming. Um, I'm not one of those. I, I feel we earned it. And I'm thrilled to see that corporate America is helping us out and wants to participate in this. But so it's a minority of people who are complaining about this, but you know, they should certainly be listened to, but um, most of us are, are thrilled with the support. It's really made a huge difference. So I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful here to corporate America for, for that support. Yeah, it, it really is amazing when you look back at how quickly that transformation happened in that in such a short period of time. And I guess that you know, looking back through history, um, that's not that unusual, right? That there's normally a long struggle and then a very quick period of progress. Obviously, when you look back at uh, women's rights, uh, African American civil rights, the 1960s, it sort of follows in that uh, in that cadence. But it is interesting to look at that through the lens of. Um, of companies and uh, the role that they play, particularly as to your point, as public sentiment started to shift in in mainstream culture, yeah. uh, you know, wouldn't suggest that they were, you know, the head of the spear on that. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's amazing to see how quickly society shifted on this on this question. You know, I, I kind of laid out there's an 11 year time period from on the political side from 2004 when there's a big political defeat. Uh, and then 11 years later is the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And most of society shrugged like, okay, cool. You know, we support gay marriage. Like how quickly society changed on this question is just dramatic. And, and it really, truly is not a big deal, you know? <laughs> so to that point of civil rights, we're having this conversation um, while the country is in another historical moment with respect to civil rights for African-Americans, there have been protests in over 140 cities following the death of George Floyd last week and the news over the weekend of Amy Cooper, a white woman in New York who was caught falsely um, accusing an African-American man threatening her in Central Park. And the support that we've seen over the last week or so has been broad and coming from a lot of corners from our society. So let's talk about what the progress or lack of progress was for African-Americans in the first decade of the century. And, um, you know, my own bias is that the the country got a little complacent. You know, you had the election of Barack Obama, and it almost felt like there was a collective sense by many Americans that the civil rights movement was a 
20th century event and that racism uh, was behind us uh, that, and I think for many of us, there have been many events in this decade that have reminded us that there is still so much work to be done. And in fact, maybe things haven't improved at all, or, or maybe they've gotten worse. What's your take on that? It's interesting. It's, it, I, I would say in some ways, like it's never been worse, but at the same time, I've never been more hopeful in that sense. Yeah. Um, I kind of use like the benchmark especially from the first decade, which was Hurricane Katrina, if you remember that. That was like a microcosm of the pandemic we're currently going through. You know, in this case, an entire city drowned and 100,000 people were left behind because they didn't have cars, overwhelmingly African-American. And it was sort of exposed to the, to the country, this, this raw chasm of, of inequality. And I think a lot of Americans really woke up to that fact that in our country, there's still people who, who can't even afford the basics. And, you know, if you think about that, that was 15 years ago, here we are 15 years later, 2020, and it's like, have things gotten better for African-Americans? And I think the answer is no. You know, even with a black president, there was a very, I think, naive sentiment in our country in 2008, 2009, when Barack Obama got elected with like, okay, we're now in a post-racial society. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I meant. Exactly. Yeah, it proved to be totally naive, you know, from, from pretty, pretty much from, from everyone, you know, so the cause of economic inequality, economic equality did not advance hardly at all during this time. And certainly with the pandemic right now, we are seeing again, that, that huge chasm that has emerged, you know, when the, when the water flushed out, we were like, holy cow. I mean, look all the African-Americans who are essential workers, right? And, and a lot of this goes back, of course, back to, back to slavery and to Jim Crow law. We, we essentially, created almost a permanent underclass in our society without allowing any kind of ladder for people to climb themselves up and, and to reach the middle class. So it's, it's really quite shocking in our history that we've allowed this to happen. And a lot of people aren't really aware of it, but institutionally we deliberately set it up this way. Yeah. And that's an interesting point you make too, with the comparison to Jim Crow, because it, it almost feels like the first decade, as I was saying before, for race relations, and I'm sure not everyone would see it this way, but I think just, you know, from sort of a a generic standpoint, it felt more like a kind of quiet period. And a lot of things were probably moving backwards when you look at, you know, voter suppression that might have been happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think to your point, there's a sort of complacent view, uh, particularly by younger, um, probably by by younger uh, folks, uh, particularly uh, white people, that um, you know we're sort of in this kind of post era, and that's you know we've kind of checked that box, and we're beyond this chapter of our painful history. Yes, racism still exists, but you know we can ne- we're never we're not going to go backwards. You know, is and um, and uh, it just feels like we have taken a step backwards. Um, yeah, certainly yeah, in the last few years. Yes, and certainly ec- economically, and this kind of ties in with uh, with where the economy is headed over over the last two decades, you know, through automation and whatnot. But, you know, African Americans were overwhelmingly represented in the working class, and of course, as we went through this deindustrialization of the economy, guess who got impacted by this? You know, mm-hmm. so whereas you used to work for say twenty five dollars an hour at a factory, and you got decent wages with healthcare and whatnot, and now you're working for, for fifteen dollars an hour at an Amazon warehouse. You know, it's, it's definitely, and you're now part of the service economy. So it's definitely taking people down a peg economically. 
But to my earlier comment about, you know, it's things have never been worse, but also I've never been more hopeful. Um, just seeing in this crisis, so many more people have raised awareness of, of the essential worker, of being people of color. And we're seeing just a huge amount of solidarity around this question. You know, I, I've been watching all the protests, how, how many, not just people of color out there protesting, but how many white people are joining them as well. Uh, largely young people, but a lot, a lot of people of all ages, you know, it's, and seeing how many over the last week or two, how many emails I've gotten from all the different organizations I belong to that are really taking a stand on this question. And in that sense, okay, okay it's, it's incomplete, of course, it's never ever quite good enough, but it's a step. And it's a really, really important step for people to recognize that, you know, there is this chasm and we do have to address it as a society. Yeah, and we started our conversation with obviously you're making the comment about about the pandemic and uh, you know 2000 and 2010. We we started that decade uh, with a lot of uh, uh, economic uh, challenge and then ended it obviously with with uh, the aftermath and, and slow recovery of the Great Recession of 2008. Um, and here we are after, you know, a, a decade of, of you know, uh, pretty strong economic expansion, uh, albeit still with a lot of uh, economic inequality. Um, and now we have, of course, you know, the, the, the dual crises of, of, uh, of the health pandemic of COVID and uh, obviously uh, the biggest uh, economic threat we potentially have had since the 1930s. Mm -hmm. What what are some of the sort of foreshadowing uh, events that you might have seen from the the early 2000s that led to where we are today? Do you see some a sequence of events that that potentially this could have been avoided um, or or not? I think the pandemic was going to arrive regardless. But our response to it was really, really lagging. And, um, and one of the things I do have to give George W. Bush credit for, I, I didn't realize this until recently, but he created the nation's pandemic plan back in 2005 after the anthrax scare. Mm. And if you recall, then, and many people have forgotten this, but we had a pandemic in 2009, right when Obama came into office, that was the H1N1 swine flu pandemic. Right. And I think about 8,000 people got, uh, were, were killed from this thing worldwide. Um, but you know, Obama basically broke the glass, pulled out the plan and executed on it. And that's all largely thanks to George W. Bush. So, you know, we executed on it swiftly. And as a result, very few people lost their lives ultimately. In this case here, we didn't do that. We waited month after month after month. We waited for the virus to get here. It got firmly planted. And then we decided we're going to do something about it. And it's far too late. We're going to be stuck with this thing, not to be a pessimist, but we're not out of this until we get a vaccine. That's just the way it is. So it's going to be a huge economic disruption. Um, I'm personally worried about a retail apocalypse. You know, so many restaurants and retail stores, they operate on razor thin margins and how can they survive, you know, beyond a couple months? Um, what's that going to do to the commercial real estate market with, uh, if half your tenants suddenly move out? So it's going to ripple, just like the Great Recession. In this case here, it's like someone dropping a boulder in a pond. Now it's created all these waves and it's gonna take years, I think, to reabsorb all the jobs, to reabsorb all the extra real estate space. You know, you think about new changes that might be happening. So many more of us are now working from home. Okay, do corporations need all this office space? Yeah. And so on, you know, I mean, already commuting is miserable. So and we've all learned, hey, we can work from home, you know? so. I think we're going to have to adapt. There's going to be changes that are going to come about from this. I mean, permanent changes, because this is no small disruption. And yeah. there will be a catharsis afterwards for change. 
Yeah, it's interesting too, uh, in terms of not only the loss uh, and, and, and all those changes that you talk about, but the the the, the stall on progress uh, and innovation. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and in some respects, you know, a great opportunity can can happen in in moments of crisis. And yeah. you know, we're gonna see, there's all kinds of interesting innovations happening, um, but at the same time. Um, you know, there's there's less investment in AI. You know, you're, mm-hmm. there's now you know less less investment in you know driverless cars. So it also essentially is halting a lot of progress uh, mm-hmm. that we might have seen quicker. Um, so I don't know if you're you're working on uh, on your your next volume for you know 2010 to, to 2020, <laughs> uh, but but if you are or or if you plan to. Uh, what would the kind of what would be the central theme of that be? Would it be uh, disruption times two? Be like uh, another or, decade of disruption. Yeah, yeah, or <laughs> disruption uh, all the time. Something uh, squared. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or um, or is there another kind of sort of centralizing theme as you think about um, you know the last ten years, uh, which unfortunately has encapsulated a bit of on, on a down note. Yeah. Um, I think how much this last decade has really been defined, I mean, obviously disruption as well, especially this event we're going through right now, but just how much senseless tribalism we've been living through, you know, as we've made sort of this false choice of rural versus urban and, and, and so on. And what does it mean to be a good American and whatnot? And that masks versus no masks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, this shouldn't be a political thing. You know, you do this for your fellow citizen, you wear your mask. You know? So that's such a disappointment, but it's politics and, and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm not signing up for that book, by the way, but at least not yet. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, that that would make sense because you have obviously the rise of the Tea Party, which I know you touch on, you know, towards the end of, of your book. And so that that does sort of the, the end of the 2000 to 2010 really does start to uh, further set that that table of tribalism, which we've experienced mm-hmm. so much of. Over the last uh, over the last ten years, yeah. So the big question for me is, okay, how do, how do we rebuild our social compact as a society? Because we we once had it. We've had great moments in our country, like around World War II and whatnot, and even after 9-11, we we had a brief period of national unity where yeah. we were all marching together. It's very very brief. Um, we don't often have national consensus around things, but like, but how do we rebuild that trust in each other? You know, I mean, we're in the middle of this horrible pandemic. Uh, which is a horrible recession as well. You know, as, as, as Jason said, it's, it's a two-sided thing. You know, we have a health emergency and an economic emergency. That's going to go on for a long time. And you see the people, like Jason and myself, we work from home. So we're pretty safe and whatnot. But you think about all the people who are having to go to the grocery store and put the lettuce out there and whatnot. They're risking their lives so that we can eat, you know. And predominantly, they are people of color. You know, whether they work at a, at a grocery store or they're a nurse and whatnot. So we have a lot of inequities in our society that we do have to address, you know. Yeah. I think this pandemic has really exposed a lot of those things. It's, it's not rural versus urban. It's, it's really, it's all of us. We're all in this really together. Yeah. And um, to your point, historically, it's been these crises like a 9-11, like a World War II that creates a moment of, of, of unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously at this moment, that's not happening. Yeah, but there will be. Um, you know, I, I certainly see just going out to the supermarket so much more solidarity that you, certainly the media hypes up. I wouldn't say hypes up, but like, okay, this last weekend we saw out in the Ozarks, you know, all these young people out there in a pool and you're like, oh no, didn't they get the memo? But, you know, go out to your local drugstore or grocery store and 
most people have their masks on. I mean, people really, I think, are, are behind this. We do stand together behind this thing. Um, the other thing, of course, is there will be a catharsis at some point. We've lived through hundreds, if not thousands, of crises in our nation's history. And this one's going to go on for a long time, I do believe, not being a pessimist here, just a realist. But there's always a catharsis afterwards. There's a will to change, a will to act, a will, okay, we're out. Let's go do something now. And that's going to come. I, I really do believe it because that's it's always what's happened before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and others have obviously spoken to this, but uh, my, my, my hope uh, personally is that this is a wake up call and a learning experience, a, a dry run, if you will, for some of the sacrifices and things we have to do around climate change. Well, Garrett, congratulations on the new book. And, uh, and uh, sorry, we're not talking under brighter circumstances, but uh, we'll be sure to, to talk to you again in the near future and uh, stay safe and be well. You as well. Thanks so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. Cool. Take All care, right. everyone. Bye, Garrett. Wear your masks. That's our episode. Thanks again to Cheryl Battles and Garrett Peck. Be safe. Take care of one another. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.